0: My name is Victor. I'm an alcoholic. 810, you said? All right. Um, my sobriety date is March 5th of 2012, and I'm very grateful for that day. You know, this meeting uh, is very special in my early recovery, um, but I'm about to qualify as a real alcoholic for everybody right now. So I was coming to this meeting for a good, like three years in my first three years, very diligent, um, took on almost all the commitments. Um, And then near the very end, I had the secretary commitment, and back then it was a six-month commitment. Is it still a month now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I had a six-month commitment to this meeting to do the secretary, and then by the end of that commitment, it was a rotation time, right? So my alcoholic thinking was like, okay, time to pass the torch. This is, this is the, the practice of service and everything like that, right? And nobody would take the secretary commitment. <laughs> I was a little upset. <laughs> so upset that I took the next month... And then I vowed, I'm never going to this meeting ever again. I caught the biggest resentment to this meeting. I was like, oh, how could that be? AA? Hey, hey, this is disgusting. Don't they understand? There's a triangle. It's not a square. It's I, I was so upset. And mind you. If you do a little bit of math, I got a little over seven years. So this is like four years ongoing. I still never came back. This is like the first time I've been back, and I still <laughs> see the same faces of the same people that were willing to take that commitment. I was like, no, that's not right. Now there's like 100 people here. Wow. All right. Real alcoholic. Like I said, um, probably have to do a four-step on that. Hand huh, on. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's good times. It's really good to see a lot of familiar faces in this meeting. Um, I remember this when it was at the Water District in Rancho Santa Margarita, so um, it seems that uh, some of the readings are still very much the same with Don's little, uh, you know, welcome uh, Saturday cheer thing and whatnot. Um, that's been going on for a long time, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's really good to be here. So, you know, as far as... As far as sobriety comes, um, I got 40 minutes, so I'm going to pretty much take up some time and tell you how I got to come to sobriety. Uh, I had originally gotten into my first drink of alcohol at about the age of 16. I remember it very clearly. I don't know if this is a normie thing that normies do—they remember their first drink. I remember it very, very clearly. I had a, I had a. A project at school that I had to do so me and two of my friends had um, set up at my parents house this project we had to do some like board I don't even remember what class was I want to say Spanish or something like that and uh, I had the great idea of going shot for shot of all the different liquors in my dad's liquor cabinet with my friends I'd never drank before, but I really didn't want my dad to know that we were drinking, so I said we should take just a little bit of every different drink that was there. Again, I don't know if this is like a precursor to alcoholism, but uh, long story short, it ended with the, the the night ended with my friend puking all over himself and on my futon. I was kind of upset about that, and uh, me getting caught. Yeah, my parents saw us and were like, "What the?" And uh, called his mom, it was like a big scene, very first time I ever drank, very, very first time. Um, But I remember the next day I went to school and I wasn't really that hungover, it wasn't too bad. And I thought, that was fun. That was good times. I got caught, but, eh, you know, as kids do, whatever. So, anyways... um, My drinking really didn't take off until I was 18. I kind of started to hang out with a bunch of like uh, punk rock kids that were straight edge and vegan, tattoos, and all that kinds of stuff. And uh, I just sucked my cigarettes. And I was like, yeah, I'm part of the crew. And uh, around the age of 18, I finally started to get uh, more heavy into my drinking. To give a little backdrop onto me, I was a I was a really introverted kind of kid, um, always kind of scared of everybody. And the world, for whatever reason, just seemed to be always staring at me, always judging me, always trying to say that you're less than... Maybe this was me just talking to myself, but I really, really thought that it was everybody else talking about me this way, right? So when it came to, like talking to people or just being freaking normal it was such a weird concept to me i like to do anything that was just abnormal but then i finally found my little group of people because uh the punk rock kids didn't care they embraced that right and i finally thought i found something but in that i found this idea that we don't really care what anybody thinks or what we even think so we're just going to kind of ride this out Again, at around the age of 18, I really started to get heavy into drinking and outside issues came into the picture at that time. Um, I started getting into crimes. I started doing all kinds of stuff. And fast forward to about the age of 20, I uh, pick up a few charges, excuse me. I pick up a few legal charges. Sales, trafficking, all that good stuff, right? Um, Not for alcohol, for outside issues. Uh, And apparently in the state of California, if you commit a crime and then bail out and then commit the same crime again, they don't really like that. Uh, They give you three years enhancements just on that alone. So uh, first time I ever went to jail, I was essentially facing a a prison sentence. I think the max term, what they originally offered was like nine years, eight months or something. Uh, And I was 20 years old, I was like, oh, wow, that's rough. Um, <laughs> yeah, ironic too because, you know, I never really thought of myself as a, as a unintelligent person. I thought I was, I was pretty with it, I could put things together. Um, so I was in jail fighting my case and at one time I called my mom and just to check in, how you doing, what's going on with you? And uh, she's like, yeah, you got some letters in the mail. And I was like, okay, what do they say? Uh, They're your letters from the colleges that you applied to. You got accepted to UCLA, UC San Diego, UC Santa Barbara, UC Irvine, all for your biology degree that you were trying to go for. Oh, thanks, Mom. I'm going to go to the School of Hard Knocks instead and... (laughs) (laughs) Try a different route. The alternative route, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, this is one thing that I've come to learn about alcoholism is it really doesn't care who you are, it doesn't care, you know, what gender you are, what race you are, how smart you are, how dumb you are, how cute you are, how not cute you are. Um, it there's, there's no judgment when it comes to this thing. It's, uh, it's wild because that, that, semblance of intelligence that I thought I had actually was counterproductive to me for a very long time. Okay, so I go to prison, do about 19 months. Um, I got out when I was at the age of 22, and they popped me into a treatment center to get off parole. My only intention of going to that treatment center was to get off parole in five months. Please, where do I sign? I don't want to be on parole for three years. That sounds miserable. So I go to this treatment center. It was my first true introduction to AA. I had gone once when I was 18, but it was for a concentrated cannabis charge. Do you guys even know what that is? It's hash. I got, I, I went to jail for hash at the age of 18. Um, I I didn't even know you could go to jail for hash. So, um, for anyone that remembers the old El Toro Club that was by the Aaron brothers, that was the meeting that I would go to weekend. They, they made me go to 16 AA meetings for 16 weeks. And I'd go into that meeting, and I'd see all these old timers. And they're just like grizzly looking people, like smell like cigarettes. And I'm just like, whoa, you guys really need to be here. Um, I'm going to get out of here. That was at 18. So again, fast forward to 22. I get a real full introduction to what AA is in this treatment center. It was kind of like a low bottom, indigent, state funded place for parolees. Um, SASCA funding, if there's any SASCA alumni in here. Uh, Anyways, Um, that's just the term for prison convicts that go to treatment. (laughs) Nothing special. Um, So, uh, yeah, it was an AA boot camp kind of place. And uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic place that I went to. They really drove in the ideas of, of how AA could save our lives, right? But I wasn't really trying to hear it. I really was just there for the purpose of doing this five months right here, so I can get off parole. That was my only intention of being there. The entire time I was going to these meetings, I even got a sponsor during that time, and I I think I completed the steps with him. I don't really remember, because I didn't really do them with him, I just kind of told him I did it. Um, But I remember doing a four step, and I wrote like the convenient names on it, that like I would just write down for anybody if they asked, like if you asked me today, like one resentment, I would just tell it to you, you know, because it doesn't bother me, but none of the real good stuff, right? so anyways, I literally, right after I got out of that treatment center, I had a party planned. I got, I, uh, I went back to my thing immediately. About two months later, I go back to jail and I'm facing another three years in prison. So I uh, finally, like, started to get the idea, man, I just keep on getting caught doing this. I gotta stop getting caught. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly no alcohol-related issues here, <laughs> just the problem with getting caught. Um, I go up to my public defender and I'm like, hey, uh, I just got out of prison, this is not going to work for me, like, we what, what can we do here? And he looks at me with this, like, kind of stern face. I don't know if anybody's ever had a public defender, but they don't really care about you too much because they see a million people, right? So they're just going to give it to you raw, and if you like it, great. If you don't, that sucks for you. <laughs> um, So he's pretty much like, you already know what you need to do. You need to go into treatment. You need to cross your fingers and do a little prayer and hope that you don't go back to prison and just do anything and everything that can get you to look really good in front of a judge. And I was like, oh, I never even thought of that. Thanks, I appreciate that. Uh, So I go uh, back to the treatment center. I beg and plead and say, please, can you let me back? I don't have any money. Um, Can you please let me back? And you know, they allowed me to to come back into the treatment center. But after a week, I had to pay my way through. They didn't scholarship me for that long. And uh, so after about a week, I, I, I did this thing. Um, and you know, I still didn't really want to get sober. I just wanted to not go to prison. Like almost every time that I had gotten sober up until, a uh, little caveat too, when I was in prison for the last 11 months of my sentence, I didn't drink or use anything while, it, If you don't know, in jail and prison, you can get a lot of alcohol and outside issues. Pruno, that's what it's called. Um, But I didn't do anything for 11 months, and then the five months afterwards, I had about 16 months of not putting any mind-altering substances into my body, and I immediately went back to doing what I was doing. Um, So then I go to this treatment center, and um, I didn't want to go to prison, so I kind of had to follow their rules and everything along those lines. At one point, with three months into the program, they moved me over to, like, their sober living, so to speak, where I wasn't, like, really housed with all the other people that were in treatment. And uh, a buddy of mine called me and said, hey, I'm going to a, uh, I'm going to be going to the show that's at the slide bar in Fullerton. Um, do you want to meet up with me? I was like, yeah, for sure. Mind you, this friend was not sober, Um, Not even close, like definitely doing everything I shouldn't be doing. But I was like, yeah, absolutely, let's definitely hang out. (laughs) This is a great idea. And uh, I, I met up with him, we met up in some suburban area right next to the slide bar, and then he opens up his trunk, takes out a Coors, or I don't remember, tosses it to me, I take it, I open it, I drink it, he gives me another one, I do the same thing with the second one. I had three years in prison hanging over my head if this whole thing didn't work out right, and there was no hesitation in me whatsoever. I didn't realize that at the time, but there's no hesitation in me whatsoever about not taking those drinks. I finish the drinks, I say, cool, I'll see you at the show. He never ends up showing up. I leave about an hour later, drive back to my sober living. No one breathalyzes me when I get there. No one does it in the morning. No harm, no foul. (laughs) Let's just not talk about that one anymore. So then I start lying about how much sober time I have. I tell everybody I have three months, I have three days. I tell everybody I have six months, I have three months. I actually accrued 13 months of sobriety during that time period, but I was telling everybody I had 16 months. Um, I picked up a fake ear chip. Um, mind you, it's kind of interesting. For anybody that's gotten a fake chip, um, you're sitting in your chair and there's that dude on your shoulder telling you like, hey, you know this isn't real, right? <laughs> <laughs> shut up, shut up. <laughs> I have to inspire all these struggling alcoholics with my beautiful words. <laughs> I have a lot to say. Um, so anyways, I get up to about 16 fake months, 13 real months, and about a week prior to me going back to drinking, um, I remember talking to, uh, I was sitting at, I think it was Chili's with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, I say, hey, do you want to get a drink? She was in Spritey, too. And I was like, hey, do you want to get a drink? And she looks at me like, what? What are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, you want to just order a beer? She's like, No. (laughs) And I was like, ah, oh, well, long story short, I got three months less than what I've been telling everybody, so blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine, let's skip that idea, right? About a week later, she asks me, hey, you want to get a six-pack in Newcastle? we're driving by 7-Eleven, and I'm like, absolutely. So I start drinking, but I didn't want to stop going to the meetings. This is weird. <laughs> I had a lot of commitments, so while I was doing those, <laughs> while I was doing those 16 months in that treatment center, again, the treatment center was really good for getting us into AA. So I had a sponsor. I was working the steps right. Um, I uh, I picked up commitments. I was you know talking to guys. I was doing the things that you do in AA, right? I was physically doing AA, but I was lying about it the the entire time. So I had a bunch of commitments, and I didn't want to let people down. Like I really didn't like want to be the guy that just didn't show up for his commitment, even though I started drinking, right? So I'm going to meetings for probably like a good month, month and a half while I'm drinking like, not all the time, but it was like once a week, once every other week, whatever. Finally at one point I called my sponsor and I was like, hey, uh, so I want to tell you something. Um, I've been drinking, um, but I'm still going to these meetings and he's all like, okay. And I don't know, should I still be going to those meetings or like, what do you think? And he's all like, well, don't you think that's kind of like not okay to like be presenting something that you're not to like especially newcomers and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, I think his intention was to have me get honest and identify as a newcomer and get sober again, right? I took it as like oh, I should probably just not go to the meetings anymore because that would be bad for the newcomers, right? So I took my sponsor's advice and I stopped going to meetings. Um, <laughs> and proceeded to have the worst 10 months of my life. Uh, I didn't have any more legal problems after that point other than being on probation, but um, it got worse. And it got to the place of, of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Um, you know, there was one moment that I recognize as being truly alcoholic. I was—I uh, had another bad night with my um, with my fiance at this point. The same girlfriend. She was now my fiance. Um, another bad night, and we kind of made the the promise of, you know, we're not going to drink anymore, right? So we. Uh, we have this faint promise, and then I get a call from my buddy. And a good friend of mine, he's like, hey, it's my birthday. Why don't you come over? I got an outside issue for you and a beer. Come on. And I was like, oh, nope, no. Nope. Uh, I was on speakerphone. I was like, no, 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 I'm not doing that right now. <laughs> um, she was hearing all this. And I was like, I'm just going to go roll in and say hi, and then I'll leave pretty shortly after, right? So I get into my car. He lived in Dana Point right off of, like, cop, uh, Copper Lantern, right? And uh, I'm going up the, or going down the 5, and I have all the windows down in my car, and I'm verbally saying out loud, I kind of felt like a crazy person, but it was, like, all the windows down, cold night, everything, wind blowing, and yelling, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to drink. Really loudly, like, in my car by myself as I'm driving on the freeway. Um, and I meant it. Like, I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to fulfill this promise that I made to my fiance. And the second that I opened that door, I get a bong and a beer, and I take both of them, and proceeded to take both of them, right? I didn't do any more, but I didn't not do it either. And uh, I didn't realize that at the moment. This is Hindsight's 2020, coming back to it, right? But then about a week later, Again, another bad day, another bad night, and essentially what March 4th of 2012 looked like was me trying to sleep on my futon in the guest bedroom of my parents' house. That's where I was staying. And uh, not being able to sleep because I was concerned that my then fiance was going to go kill herself, and I was somehow going to stop her from doing that. And all the while, pretty much conceding to the idea that Victor, these are the cards you got dealt in life. You're going to be miserable for the rest of your life, and that's okay. That's just how life goes sometimes, and yeah, you just got the bad stick, buddy. Sorry. And I, I believed that, like to the core of me. I genuinely thought that I was just going to be sad for the rest of my life, and I was kind of okay with it. And just kind of was like, you're gonna marry this person that you hate, you're gonna continue on life just having these miserable moments, drink is never gonna fix anything, but you're gonna continue doing it, you're gonna to continue to have the weakest friends in the world, this is just gonna be your life and that's gonna be what happens, right? I don't know what it was, act of providence, whatever you wanna call it. Next morning I woke up and I wasn't satisfied with that answer. and that was the day that I consider March 5th of 2012 as my sobriety date. Uh, This was a topic of discussion with my sponsor for a long time. I actually didn't drink anything for about a week prior to that, and I went back and forth with my sponsor for a while about what my actual sobriety date was. The first day I went back to AA is what I consider my sobriety date because that's when I actually did something different about the miserable existence that Victor was. If that's what crazy Victor looks like um, the day of... March 4th, 2012, that's not sober at all in my eyes. That's just not drinking, but still alcoholic to the core, right? So March 5th, 2012 began, and uh, I went to a meeting. And then I went to another meeting. And then I went to a few more meetings. Mm-hmm. And my uh, my then-fiancée um, decided that she was going to go to meetings, too. Um, we ended up getting married later on. We actually have the same sobriety day. It's cute. Um, I know, I know, we're that couple, yeah. yeah, the one in a million for anybody in treatment. I know, you guys are like, that guy said it could do it, that guy could do it, I can do it. Yeah, I know, I know, sorry, all the treatment people, yeah. So uh, regardless, she, uh, at 15 days, started talking to me about a sponsor already, and got this, got that, and I'm just sitting here looking at her like, excuse me. I didn't tell you guys before. I was very atheist uh, growing up, extremely atheist. I would be the guy at the, or at the Viejo Mall for any locals, um, looking for the guys that had the short sleeve and the tie um, because I wanted to have a have a talk with them. Right? Um, They're always there. They're always there. Um, I just want to chat with them, and uh, I, I very much so wanted to understand spirituality. I wanted to understand religion. I wanted to understand these things. I read everything and anything that I can get my hands on and to me it was always just uh, books, cool stories. And good ideas, sure, but just stories. In the end, there is nothing out there. I'm atheist to the core and I wanted to tell people and explain to them why their beliefs were probably not correct and why you should probably think in a different way. so I got into sobriety, and I see my wife talking about all this stuff, and I wasn't too happy. And then about 30 days rolls up, I get my first sponsor, and he didn't really help me. He uh, he had about like 27 years or something like that, or I don't remember, a lot of years. And I met up with him for about five minutes at some coffee shop. He talked to me for about, you know, like I said, five minutes. Um, and then he told me I was on step four, and I was like, wait, what about the first three steps? And he was like, oh, we just did that right now, and I was like, we did? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so he gave me, he said he was gonna email me something for my four-step, he never did. About a week after that, i met somebody else, or two weeks after that, I met somebody else. I tried calling him a bunch of times, too, and he never answered, right? Um, the few times that he did answer, it was, like, meaningless, and then... About two weeks after that, I got another sponsor, seemed like a solid dude, had like 15 years, um, had some really good shares and meetings, and uh, I'd call him every day, sometimes he would answer, he didn't have a cell phone, so I'd have to call his house phone, and sometimes he would answer, and the times that he would, um, I'd pretty much just tell him what was going on in my day, and then he'd be like, okay, call me tomorrow, mind you. Looking at it now, maybe I could have stuck through with it at that time, but I remember one day I was calling my sponsor. This is like 45 days into my sobriety miserable. Like, not even happy in any way, shape, or form. For anybody that's in their first 30, 60, 90 days that doesn't feel good about sobriety, welcome. Like, yeah, sobriety kind of sucks in the beginning because your life sucks. I hate to say it, right? And I wasn't having a good time I called this sponsor one day in the car with my with my fiancé sitting next to me, and she's like, are you even getting anything out of this? I was like, no, but this is what you're supposed to do, right? Like, in the most sad puppy dog face, right? And uh, she suggested, why don't you just get a sponsor of somebody that you, like, remember from before? That was, like, solid program. So I did that, I and mean, he's the same sponsor I have today. Uh, that man directed me through the 12 steps, and it was, it was very difficult, but... Um, you know, step one was kind of easy for me. I told you guys that story about the driving to, to my buddy's house with the windows down. It's pretty powerless, right? Um, but the part that never really struck true with me is, with the, was the unmanageable part of my life. Because I'm a smart guy, right? So I can figure this stuff out. So the, what unmanageable part of my life? I didn't lose my jobs. I've never been fired from a job. I have a good work ethic. Um, I still had a place to stay. My parents were still in my life, right? Um, I, I was looking at all these things that hadn't happened to me. I didn't really take a look at the things that had happened to me. But then really what struck true to me was that night of March 4th of 2012 when I was sitting on that couch and literally just spinning myself crazy. and. I don't know, I don't know about you, but hearing that even right now, there's nothing manageable about that in any way, shape, or form. So step one, cool, we got that. I figured that one out after this time. This is the first time that I actually wanted to get sober for the sake of getting sober too, as opposed to just having some legal requirement to do it. But then step two came into play, and that was gonna be an issue. Um, It was going to be a very, very big issue for me because I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a higher power. This doesn't exist to me. This is stuff that you guys write in books that you try to convince me with your debate fallacies of why I'm a believer and things along those lines, right? Uh, We Agnostics is actually, to this day, one of my least favorite chapters in the big book (laughs) Um, because every time I read it, I just hear debate fallacy. But my sponsor said that this is a requirement because you don't have the power in you to be able to overcome this thing. And I, I knew he was right. I knew that my sponsor had that one nailed because I couldn't do this on my own. There was no possible way for me to stay sober without somebody else directing me through that. So when step two came into play, and step three, like they, they combined into each other, step two was pretty much this. There's atoms in the air. And although we don't see anything, there's quantum physics that says electron density and da-da-da-da-da. So technically, yeah, we're all connected. If I pinch myself, I'm pinching everybody else in this room. And okay, there's my higher power. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. That was literally what I had to come up with, and it took a while. Um, so step three, my sponsor's like, all right, let's get on our knees and do third step prayer. And I was like, oh my God. Um, but I did it, and I continued to do it. Actually, the third step prayer is one of my favorite prayers. And uh, then it came up to the fourth step. I lagged forever. I took forever to do it, not because I was afraid to do it. I just procrastinated because I was, don't you know, so busy in my life working in retail and not doing anything with myself. I had plenty of time. I had no excuses, right? But I lagged, and I got sick in the sense of, spiritually sick by not working on this thing, but my sponsor, I was super diligent, like, I don't know why I believed in this man so much, but I called him every day, without fail, actually, my sponsor, I don't, I don't call him every day nowadays, but for a good five and a half years, I was every single day calling my sponsor, and he even said to me, like, you know, you don't have to call me every day, (laughs) but I was just, I don't know, I was fearful that if I did not something bad would happen, it became a routine after a while, right, Um, but anyways, Four step, I lagged. I eventually, finally did it. I didn't get that moment of, of like feeling more like, you know, weight was off my chest. I figured out oh, how the fifth step will do it, right? So I finally do the fifth step, and I actually wrote down everything on my fourth step that I didn't write down on my previous four steps. The stuff that I really wasn't going to talk to anybody about, those things that I knew nobody was ever going to find out about, was actually on this fourth step. And then I told my sponsor, and he's like, "Oh yeah, same thing happened to me." And I was all like, "What?" No, it's when that's not normal. Like, why are you making this normal? <laughs> that's, that's not supposed to happen to anybody. <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, 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 similar experience. And I was like, oh, okay. So maybe I'm not alone. And uh, But I didn't get that free moment. He told me to do like the hour meditation afterwards. And I was like, this is stupid. I don't feel good at all. <laughs> I don't feel like a, a weight has been lifted off of me. And did six and seven. Pretty much looked at everything that was... You know, from my fourth step, if, if, you know, for the people I've done the 12 steps, there's a reason why step one is one and two and two, three and three, four and four, five and five. They all kind of build up off of each other, right? So it's kind of hard to do a six and seven step if you didn't do an adequate fourth and fifth step, right? So all the while getting me to do these prayers, the seventh step prayer and everything along those lines. And I was doing them. I didn't believe in them. For anybody that doesn't believe in a higher power that has a very hard time with that, I went pretty good year and a half doing all the prayers and all the meditations that my sponsor asked me to do and never once feeling anything and thought this was stupid the entire time. But I did it because he told me to do it and he seemed to have a good life and I would do it anyways, right? Um, So then came my eighth and ninth step. Eighth step was easy. It was just my harms list, right? So I just pulled up my harms list and looked through it. My sponsor said, are you ready to do it? And I was like, yeah, let's go. So then a the nice step came up. I did all the easy ones, like the moms and dads and, and the fiance and and you know, the sisters, whatever, right? There's a few people that were very hard though. My aunt, uncles on both sides of my families, right? Um, I'm Eastern European and Romanian, so in my family it's very much so. Don't talk about it. It's in the past, it's just leave it behind us and, and keep moving forward. Um, we don't want to bring up old memories. So my aunt from my younger cousin's side she uh, at one point came to my mom's house and I'd laughed I'd partied and went knocks there out of town she found a plate that had some white stuff on it and um, you know cleaned it up and told me about it later on and uh, that was really hard for me to see. She came from Romania after like uh, many, many years of trying to come over here. Same with my parents. It took my parents 10 years to immigrate to America. For, for everything I've been through, my parents have been through 10 times worse. And to do that kinds of stuff to my family, it was like heartbreaking, right? Um, I didn't say this earlier, but my dad um, never saw the man cry. The first time I ever see him shed a tear was when I was walking through the visiting office to see me when I was upstate in Corcoran. And I see the like solo tear come down his eyes like, ah, dad, come on, don't do me like that, right? Um, so to do these things to my family was like pretty much one of the worst things I could think of doing. And I didn't do the amend for a long time. I called my sponsor every day, right? Every single day, without fail, my sponsor would ask me, did you set up the schedule for that for that amend? Did you do that amends? Da, 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 da. No, not today. Uh, yeah, it's going to uh, Haven't really. Yeah, OK, I get it. I should do it. And it just, every single day, God bless that man, he finally got me to the point where I had the opportunity, it was right in front of me, it was kind of one of those moments where like, you know, my higher power was just like, think do it. <laughs> and uh, I called my sponsor, he's like, dude, just pray and go. And I did, and it was literally one of the first moments where I got a chance to experience what my higher power had set forth for me, and I got this relief. And, of course, my my aunt said and my uncle said, it's in the past exactly like I'd expect them to, right? But it was one of the moments where I finally saw that. AA has nothing to do with what you think. It has nothing to do with what you feel. It has nothing to do about your past. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It's literally the things that we do. Because from that point on, I finally realized that it was the prayers that I was doing. It was the amends that I was doing. It was the four steps that I was doing. It was showing up at meetings. It was helping newcomers. It was doing the things on a day-to-day basis that actually got me to that point of being able to do this amend at that Um, Continue on to the 10th, 11th, and 12th step. Essentially, the meditation part of things was a little bit more into what I was into because I kind of got into like the Eastern philosophies kind of side of Berlin. And um, I really started to take off with that and to do like a daily, essentially a reflection on my day, which is uh, essentially what my 10th step was. My sponsor made me do seven days straight of this actual written thing, and he's like, all right, you can kind of wing it after that. and uh, then the 12-step really starting to pass this on to other people. At about a year and a half uh, sober, <laughs> my then-wife was talking to Don, and uh, she was, I don't know if you even remember this, uh, she was on the phone with her and said something to the extent of, yeah, and Victor still thinks he's atheist. And then Don said, I don't know why I heard this either. It must have been on a speakerphone, or why I was eavesdropping, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Don said, he's spiritual and he doesn't even know it and at that moment it just kind of like all happened the the spiritual awakening that they talk about i didn't see a burning bush i didn't have any of that happen but it was kind of like one of those hmm moments and my spirituality took off and i really 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 found a home in aa and really found a home in spiritual way of living and really just trying to get outside of self and stop worrying about so many things that don't mean anything to anyone. And most of the concerns that I have to this day are usually just manifestations of self, and it's a constant practice for me to get out of that. I'm not perfect by any stretch, but the external things kind of came through. I got married to that fiancé. We had two kids in the meantime, two of the best experiences that I've had in sobriety. It's actually funny. When I got married, I remember... Uh, We had the reception um, right after the ceremony. The ceremony, I was a mess. I was crying all over the place. When I get really happy, I cry. It's funny. Um, So I was just a mess. But afterwards, we went to have the, like, it was a morning wedding, and we went to have the, like, uh, the brunch. It was kind of like a dinner, actually, but for, like, 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And it was like a steak dinner type of thing. But uh, I tried to put the steak into my mouth, and it tasted like chalk. I was like what is going on here? I had so much adrenaline rushing through my body. I was like, "Yeah, oh, this is a great feeling right now. I haven't even done anything. It's crazy. Um, and I woke up the next morning remembering everything. What a thought. Wow. didn't have to, like, burn any bridges that night, right? The birth of my kids was an amazing experience, too. But uh, external things aside, I mean, we all kind of get those things as we stay sober. And honestly, I've seen a lot of people get those things in sobriety, but they still don't get that internal wellness that is really what... M- you know, for what I think about it, what my higher power really has destined for me. If I could be okay with myself and really kind of, like, be of as much usefulness to my brothers and sisters as I can, that's really what promotes me as being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So, fast forward to even, like, I think after the birth of my second kid, I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, so um, after the birth of my second kid, Um, I remember it was just a regular old day, like, I went to my parents' house to hang out with them, and my dad does one of those, like, and he was like, I'm proud of you. And I was like, what? Like, that one hurt, you know? That was one of those, like... Those things that you don't really think about when you first get sober, or when you're out there doing your thing and drinking and partying, and think this is all cool and fun, and there's no risks or harms, and you know we've all had people die in our lives from this thing. We've all had the realities of what alcoholics, you know, tend to go through, and it's a really, really grim existence. But it's moments like that that really like strike home for me, and really like those are the heartstring, those are the heartstring pullers. You know what I mean? Those are the ones that really, really, really finally show me that. You know what, after, I mean, this is the kid that went to prison when he was 20, pulled up so much debt on my family for stupid stuff, had all this terrible things go on prior to getting sober, and since getting sober, I'd, I'd have to be honest and say that, albeit it wasn't easy, it was challenging, there was a lot of difficult times through the process of getting sober and even in sobriety. there was times where I genuinely did not want to continue doing AA. I didn't want to use any alcohol, but I didn't want to continue doing this. I thought it was taking up too much time out of my life. I was like five years sober. Um, I got a chance to kind of reinvigorate myself. I kind of pulled up on getting some more and. Um, it really, really got me back into play with it, right? But this is kind of the ebbs and flows that go along with sobriety. And the reality is, the life that I have today and the reasons why I come and do speaker shows like this or just pick up the phone when, when anybody calls me, quite frankly, um, is because this life that I have, all directed through my belief in a higher power, and it's not just quantum physics anymore. It's a lot deeper than that. Um, I started going to like shrines and getting all into it, so. Um, But, uh, it is just this connectedness with the world that, honestly, I would never have if I was drinking. And I know that if I go out there and drink, I immediately break that connection that I have with the world around me. And that, to me, seems way worse than any great quote-unquote night that I have. The ability for me to be there for my kids and know that they don't have to see their dad drunk or to be able to be there for my wife and know that she doesn't have to see me drunk or have phone calls from friends or be there for my family or whatever, and I'm not gonna ever miss those calls on account of being drunk. It's a good feeling for me. And if it takes just going to AA and showing up a few times, answering a few phone calls, and maybe just thinking about somebody else a little bit more than myself, sign me up all day. Thank you, guys.